today, the, my presentation is, is uh, basically, I, I'll be describing part of my PhD research project, which is centered on the core question, how are urban contexts of rapidly changing and intensifying migration-based diversification, socially and spatially experienced, practiced, and governed? And the research, as Michael mentioned, I, I uh, undertook in a locality or neighborhood of Istanbul known as Kumkapı, and just to kind of those of you who have maybe been on a tourist excursion to Istanbul to kind of point out where it is. So you might be familiar with the historical peninsula. This is the Grand Bazaar up here. So the area, it's actually not very clear, is it? Maybe from distance. But the area, kind of the stretch that I explored is this part here. So this is Sultan Ahmed, the other very well-known historic zone. And um, uh, Istanbul University, so it's actually this bottom stretch here, or to point on the Google Maps, like these were kind of the main avenues where I divided or f decided that would, they would kind of be the physical boundaries of my, uh, of, uh, of my study. Though kind of when you, what I discovered eventually is that um, like Kumkapı, what I thought was Kumkapı actually depending on who arrived at what time, they might be attributing different names to the locality. But just to point out that this is the stretch, but in my talk I'll also be uh, referring to two other neighborhoods, um, actually th three. Uh, one is Laleli, which is kind of... So if you've been to the bazaar, if you just walk down the street towards the Marmara Sea, uh, basically these are the three districts that you'll be walking through. So I'll be talking about Laleli up north, Gedikpasha up north, and then Kumkapı, this stretch here, and Yenikapı, which is kind of the other side of the avenue. And just recently, it's kind of the first... Uh, underground uh, tunnel that brings Europe and Asia together was built in this Yenikapu, so it's like a very significant uh, point at the moment. And for Prime Minister, or sorry, now President Erdogan, you know, all his mega projects are kind of uh, centered in this area just beyond. And actually, just last week, there was news that they're going to um, completely not destroy, but demolish uh, quite a large area just uh, on the other side of Kumkapu. So that will be relevant for the future of my research. Um, and in my presentation, there's uh, four, four points that I would like to emphasize and for you to, to go away with, and I'll, I'll point at them each uh, in time. And in the conclusion, I'm going to try and kind of reflect on these points and how it relates to the question about how to conceive urban spaces of migrant arrival in the contemporary era. So in tracing Kumkapu's population shifts to the present day and the social-spatial transformations, um, it becomes obvious that migrant settlement here, and I, I'm referring to international migrants, and I have to emphasize, as, as I did in my title, just because in Turkey you still have very prevalent internal migration flows. So kind of unlike the European Western context where a migrant is assumed to just be a person of international or, or uh, another country origin, in Turkey you still have internal migration. So um, what I argue is that when you look at uh, spaces of uh, international migrant settlement in the city, it's not coincidental, uh, or you know, the areas that they choose to settle are not coincidental, and that there's also multiple factors, not just you know, ethnic affinity or social networks, which determine uh, the particular choice of settlement. So in the, in the case of Kumkapa, and in fact many of the neighborhoods you see in Istanbul, uh, for those of you who know, you might have heard of Kurtuluş, Tarlabaşı, Zeytinburnu. These are areas that have kind of developed into migrant arrival spaces. And interestingly, um, apart from Zeytinburnu, all of the three actually have histories as being uh, migrant, uh, sorry, minority ghettos, whatever you want to call it, um, historically, uh, both under the Ottoman Empire, but also uh, for the first decades into the, into the Turkish Republic. And um, Kumkapı uh, was um, especially the, the, the main minority population 
uh, identified with Kumkapu was the Armenians, and uh, you also had a small Greek population, though their presence was more towards the Yenikapu uh, part I mentioned. And today that's very visibly marked on space as they still have uh, several significant uh, religious and educational institutions that are still active. In fact, the, the Armenian patriarch uh, in, of Turkey, his residence, is still in Kumkapu. And um, so what happened with these populations, the minority populations in, in Turkey, if you know the history, is well, basically they uh, emigrated in the millions or were killed in the millions. Um, I'm allowed to say that. Um, and uh, so what you see is kind of uh, in a lot of these uh, minority neighborhoods in Istanbul, a gradual emigration of the minority populations, um, mostly as a result of kind of increasing uh, nationalistic and discriminatory state policies, but also kind of growing uh, public hostility. And uh, this was most prevalent in uh, like the, the 60s and 70s. It actually had to do with the division of, of Cyprus and the war there, but all minority populations, the Jews and the Armenians, were also impacted by this hostility. So you see kind of a gradual emigration, and in return, this also coincides with the period where of, of massive internal migration flows in Turkey, where Istanbul's population in a span of just a few decades uh, multiplied uh, tenfold. And naturally, as one population starts leaving, you know, that means kind of housing vacancy. So internal migrants began moving in, in greater numbers to these central districts. And uh, besides housing availability, a factor that, that pulled them, uh, that brought them to Kumkapu or, or the, the larger historical district was also the commercialization. So uh, rapidly kind of creeping into these previously residential spaces, which is a phenomenon you see in kind of most uh, major cities during this period in terms of industrialization and, like I said, commercialization of the inner city and kind of white flight or towards the suburbs. So, you know, th those populations, uh, for instance, Armenians who I spoke to who still live in Istanbul and maybe were living previously in Kumkapu kind of always refer to the space suddenly becoming very commercialized, you know, that feeling of family life decreasing, a lot of noise and traffic. And... Um, and you see this most the, the markers of this transition most visibly in the neighborhood, as I mentioned, uh, known as Gedik Pasha, which was also uh, an Armenian uh, space. And in fact, that's uh, just the Armenian Protestant church there. And this developed into uh, an area for uh, manufacture, leather and shoe uh, manufacturing. And today, when you walk in this area, uh, it's, it's, you, you really feel that function of the space. So, for instance, on a weekday, you'll hear sewing machines and kind of banging. I don't know exactly what type of trade they're doing, but, you know, perhaps banging the soles in the shoes. But, you know, it's part of the sensorial experience. And when you walk through Sunday, it's absolutely dead. Only maybe there's, a, you know, a crowd in front of the church. But otherwise, you know, it's a very quiet space. But what this meant was that this was drawing a lot of labor migrants. So the internal la labor migrants who were initially male and single, not single in terms of family status, but in the sense that they didn't bring their families with them. So, you know, this, this was a very attractive destination for them, and they were seeking housing where they would uh, be allowed to reside. And as I'm going to explain later, uh, Kumkapu offered this option to them. Um, but another very, I think, one of the most important factors that allowed uh, to Kumkapu's emergence as a space of arrival for international migrants was actually developments in Laleli, just up north. Uh, which you can describe as a uh, transnational trading zone today. Um, so um, in the, there were several kind of global economic opportunities uh, that, uh, that offered uh, new opportunities, uh, economic opportunities uh, in Laleli. And the first one was the oil boom. 
and which brought a lot of Middle Eastern tourists to Turkey in the in the 70s. And I mean, this is something I read that I don't know personally, but you, th this was when gradually a lot of the properties in Nalili began transforming into hotels um, and to, to like clubs, restaurants. You know, they were trying to attract this, these these new uh, transnational flows to Turkey. And uh, but this really uh, ch changed most radically, or when I say the, the functions of the space changed most radically with the 90s. Again, an opportunity this time offered by the fall of the Soviet wall where suddenly they realized the potential of uh, traders uh, coming from Russia primarily seeking, uh, you know, cheap consumer goods in large quantities. And, uh, but it, it, it emerged as an informal uh, market uh, because, you know, these were pe people interested uh, in buying large consumer goods but not wanting to pay uh, taxes, import or export taxes on both sides. So you have this phenomena of uh, shuttle or suitcase trading uh, that became very prominent in this area, uh, which in turn also started offering job opportunities for uh, international migrants, uh, namely as, you know, working in the shops. So when you're walking in there, you'll see a lot of these types of ads saying, this says speaking Arabic and English speaking uh, staff member, speak, uh, seeking Russian size 36, size 34 <laughs> female staff member. Uh, and that I, that's what I learned very interestingly is because increasingly they're doing trading via Skype, so they want a person who's, you know, well-fitted and they can, you know, test the dresses and jackets uh, to the customers in S Siberia via Skype. But so actually, uh, and today, you, the I think the Russians are not, they, they were the primary customers in the 90s, but today... That, that vibrancy or the, the significance uh, of Lalele um, in the 90s is, is not as prevalent, but it stretched out to a lot of different countries, primarily in Central Asia, in the Middle East, and uh, also North, and, uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I've been questioning why is it that Lalele, I, I never get an answer to why specifically Lalele transformed into... Um, this transnational labor market and not say Gedik Pasha. And I think it's partly, again, you know, because I, oh, I forgot to mention my methodology, sorry. But, you know, I, I really, part of my methodology was really, you know, walking through these spaces, trying to understand changes in the sensorial experiences, visual markers, and, you know, you know all these aspects. And with Lalil, actually, the building stock, so what I read uh, is that historically it was primarily Turkish bureaucrats. It's the Istanbul University is just across the street. So bureaucrats and uh, civil servants, and so a lot. Also, the building structure—you don't have these historic row houses. You have these kind of modern apartment buildings. So I'm guessing maybe it was, you know, partly to do with this materiality that offered um, this opportunity to transform it into this uh, kind of open mall. And as I mentioned, it's created a lot of labor opportunities for for uh, newcomers and migrants. And one sector you see this also is in this international shipping business. So as I said, it's in my title I do talk about informality, but in my fieldwork it was something very hard to get into. But I can just you know trust me when I say it's an informal market in in kind of devious ways. So it's like partly formalized but partly informal. So for instance, these are actually taken to uh, this is that avenue I mentioned to you, dividing Kumkapa and Yenikapa. So. You know, they're not taking them in their suitcases, but this is not like formal exporting either. So it's still the, like tax is not deducted on either side. And, and interestingly, a lot of these shipping companies today uh, are based in Kumkapa because in Lalil, as I said, they want to the, give this open mall feeling. So they've closed it down to traffic. So uh, a lot of the uh, shipping companies also rents are just exor exorbitant in Lalil. So they've had to move these shipping companies uh, into the streets of Kumkapa. 
But Kumkabu actually, compared to Lalilin and Gedik Pasha, still remains primarily a residential space, even though, as I'm going to explain, the, the, the demographic composition and, um, of its population, the, the demographic population, the <laughs> the demographic composition of its inhabitants and also the spatial attributes of, of housing have changed quite significantly. And in fact, uh, housing in itself in Kumkapa has become a highly commercialized practice uh, in response to the, the, the changing demographics. And you increasingly see, I, I will show in a while, uh, like uh, houses being converted uh, to meet the demands of this new growing foreigner population in the form of like room rentals or even sheds and basements being transformed uh, for the purpose of, of rental. And the density of this housing type is very high, and again, it's something you really feel. Uh, like Kumkabu is the one space in that area where on the weekends or on the weekdays, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that dynamism never dies, uh, dies out. And... Um, What's happened is that as this population has been expanded, so have businesses uh, catering to uh, the new migrant population been expanding. And uh, I mean, again, this is very similar, I guess, to many of the global cities of the world. You have all these international calling shops in the dozens. Um, as I mentioned, there's a lot of these shipping companies. What I found very interesting and what kind of speaks to the fluidity and the dynamics of, of the neighborhood is the laundry facilities. I mean, in Istanbul, there's no, I've you know traveled pretty well around the city in a lot of different spaces. I've never come across kind of laundry facilities uh, or uh, in as in so in so many numbers in different neighborhoods. And also increasingly, uh, I'm, this is not as visible because most of them are actually hidden behind closed doors. But you have ethnic restaurants and ethnic hairdressers now increasingly more emerging. Uh, you know, uh, appealing to the different communities. And the, the sixth point, or sixth factor I wanted to talk about, um, but I'm going to come to in more detail in the end, is that another pull factor is that difference, foreignness, and kind of irregularity, informality has become a norm, uh, or kind of an exceptional norm attributed to Kumkapa, which is also a factor that draws many um, people here. Um, now, the, the second point, argument I make is that uh, neighborhoods of migrant arrival are highly diverse in new and complex ways. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with Steve Vertovec's concept of, of super diversity. And Kumkapa is a super diverse space by all definitions of the term. And, um, and, but importantly, not just in relation to the international migration, uh, po migrant population. So if you were to kind of look at, I mean, this is a very rough overview. I can't provide any statistical information whatsoever. Um, you know, even for the, the, quote, native population, such data is not available in the census. In Turkey, you don't have kind of ethnic, religious, linguistic differences uh, pointed in census data. So it's kind of pure observation and qualitative research where I'm pointing to this. But um, so if you look at the, the, at the, po the current uh, population residing here, um, you, have, you, you still have some uh, of the kind of non-Muslim, Greek, Armenian uh, residents here, some of the very, very older ones who've been here for several decades. But interestingly, actually most of the Armenians, uh, Turkish Armenians I met are um, kind of partly Kurdish uh, Armenians uh, who, migrate, who also have migratory histories. So they came in the, in the 90s. And in terms of the ethnic Turks, again, they're kind of the smaller population, 
many of them, so the internal migration flows in the 60s and 70s consisted primarily of migrants coming from central Anatolia and the Black Sea. So, you know, uh, I, I still met many people coming from these districts. But what's important, I'm going to argue later, is that um, while that population, these populations might be sp small in terms of their well, they're not physically, individually present, but they have a material presence there in, in terms of property ownership, actually. And, uh, you know, they're still the people running a lot of the businesses in the area. But in terms of the demographic composition who are uh, re residents there, uh, the largest population is, I would, or population is roughly divided between ethnic Kurds and Arabs, again, uh, migrating from eastern parts of Turkey in the 80s and 90s, partly for labor purposes, but forced migration was a very significant cause, whereas in terms of the foreigner population, um, it's incredibly diverse, and most are, you know, coming from any country between Moldova all the way to, um, where would it end? No, Bangladesh and, and Sri Lanka, it's kind of that stretch, you have a lot, every country represented in between there, and a lot of sub-Saharan Africans have been coming, as well as North Africans, and now, in the past two years, increasingly more Syrians uh, have also been coming. So, you know, in terms of, like, language, background, religious, national, ethnic background, there's an immense diversity, uh, but very, uh, what's also significant is that you also see an immense diversity in terms of, for instance, gender and age composition of the different groups. So there's a lot of migrants coming from Armenia, the country, Armenia uh, proper, and it's a very gendered migration. Uh, elderly women uh, has been kind of the, the main group. Or uh, age-wise, for instance, you have a lot of Somali unaccompanied minor refugees or also from the kind of the Western Cape of, of, of Sub-Saharan Africa, like from Guinea, um, which is a case I'll be explaining. And, and in terms of, you know, the time of migration, the motives of migration, channels of migration, you know, did they have a visa? Are they visa overstayers? Did they um, or did they smuggle through the border? Um, and in terms of legal statuses and strategies, you know, some seek, uh, you know, women in particular seek legalization through marriage. You have a lot of uh, asylum applicants, and you have a lot who are just outright, quote, um, illegal in terms of their legal status. And then there's also a lot of distinctions in terms of the labor markets they have access to in Turkey. Um, and, uh, yes, regional transnational ties. Anyways, just believe me when I say it's incredibly diverse. So the third point I want to make um, is that against this background of, of immense diversity, what I found remarkable was that there is actually certain patterns in the way that this totality of diversity in Kumkapa is, is um, perceived and received by uh, the inhabitants in this space, though it's, I argue, it's conflicted. And when I mean conflicted, it's not like one group perceives it this way, one group perceives it another way. I mean that you know each individual actually internally has a conflicted sense to this uh, place, including myself. You know, I really describe the whole fieldwork process. Maybe this is not unique to me, but as a love and hate relationship, you know, there was just something I found incredibly fascinating, and. Um, you know, the, the, just the, this potential of this space in terms of humanity and, you know, cosmopolitanism, which I thought was incredibly fascinating, but there was also points where I just thought that it was the most violent and exclusive uh, place on earth possible. So, and I think, uh, you know, it's something that, it's, it's kind of an affect that this space produces. So, in terms of how uh, people narrate the diversity of Kumkapa, one is, is this nostalgic sense, and you come across this in actually a lot of different minority neighborhoods in Turkey. You know, they always talk about the good old days when 
Turks, Muslims and Christians and Jews, they lived side by side. And it's just remarkable. I did research in Tarlabashi as well a few years ago where they always talk about the smell of the Easter bread, which, you know, and these are people who weren't even living there in the 50s. But there is this kind of narrative of this cosmopolitan Ottoman period where, you know, people across differences lived side by side peacefully. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of criticism to say in that, you know, nobody speaks about the violent expulsion of these populations. You know, they just refer to that time where everything was peaceful. But what's interesting is that kind of that nostalgic loss of the past is always related to the present moment where they speak a lot about filth, um, both physical filth. I mean, the, the streets of Kumkap are very crowded, as I said, and you do see a lot of, like, physical filth around. The houses are very... Um, dilapidated, and but there's also the symbolic pollution that I'm going to talk about in the sense that you know there's no civic norms. So um, you know th- there it's it's so this is not so different from just urbanization in general, and you know talking about you know how internal migration and rural mi- rural inter- uh, rural to urban migration in particular is kind of. Uh, seen as the cause of this filth and you know there was a civic life beforehand and urban life beforehand and now that has been changed but what's interesting is that how there's kind of a um, what I would say like a, a sequential um, attrib- how to put it where each migrant group always blames uh, the newcomer for, for the current filth. So, for instance, an Armenian who's been resident in the neighborhood for 40, 50 years will talk about the arrival of the Black Sea migrants. The Black Sea migrant will talk about the arrival of the Kurdish migrants. The Kurdish migrant will talk about the arrival of the Russians, so like all kind of post-Soviet states, whereas, you know, the Russians will talk about the arrivals of the Blacks. And interestingly, now I'm hearing some of my uh, African informants talk about the Syrians coming in. So, you know, there's always like this, which again, you know, is... I guess part of just uh, this narrative of urban change. So there's always this disturbance with these new arrivals kind of changing the order of the space. But on the other hand, the diversity of Kumkap is also very frequently spoken about as a pot- you know, offering a lot of potential. And actually people use this word. They say there's a lot of potential in Kumkap. And this is referring primarily to um, economic potential. And this translates into highly cosmopolitan business practices cosmopolitan and flexible business practices emerging in the area. So, you know, I pointed out to some of these different, like the call shops or the laundries and um, a lot of real estate agents. But what's interesting uh, is that uh, you, you see how quickly they respond to market demand. So, for instance, a call shop might the next day have like, uh, I mean, it's remarkable architecturally how they do it as well, but like under the staircase, they'll start putting uh, clothes, uh, like a little retail stall there, because, you know, a lot of the customers are also traders going to La Lili, for instance. So, you know, all these opportunities are being sought. Or, for instance, um, in an international shipping companies often actually provide informal banking services because, you know, a lot of the undocumented population, they don't have spaces to store their money. There's a lot of theft. So, you know, kind of needing a secure space uh, to store money. Also, informal remittances uh, are, are sent. Or a lot of the realtors usually have uh, serve, uh, you know, also as employment procurement agencies or uh, even setting up uh, interviews with authorities, you know, providing kind of internet services. So, you know, they, they quickly adapt to these demands um, that are being set. And in the housing sector, you see this flexibility a lot as well, or, or that la- landlords have to respond to this flexibility. So, you know, in terms of how many people are they going to allow to rent a single room, uh, or, you know, will the, if this is a six-room flat, will, who, who will have say over who the tenants are going to be? 
or how this space is used. So, for instance, um, in my house uh, alone, one of the in one of the flats, you know, they were using one person rented all the six rooms, but they were actually subletting the other rooms uh, for traders for like kind of. So it was like as a lodge. As I said, they use them as kind of increasingly as hairdressers and uh, informal restaurants. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a flexibility a landlord ha has to decide if they're willing to grant or not. But one thing that people refer to as, you know, a kind of criteria of living in Kumkapa is that uh, you have to be open. And, and there's many different interpretations about what this openness means. And one of these dimensions is actually um, a certain... Like that, 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 there's a certain exceptionality of kumkapa in terms of stretching legal boundaries. So one one of them, as I said, is that you know a lot of the practices, the economic practices, business practices you see in this area are informal, as I mentioned. And um, but it's not just you know the business practice, but even the individuals that are inhabiting this space are. Uh, informal or irregular, whatever the, the term you would like to use. But, you know, I won't say illegal uh, or undocumented just because people kind of, they, they move between uh, strategies. Or, they, you know, they might be legal in terms of residential status, but most probably they're working uh, legally in terms of, of employment um, permits. But also, Kumkapa has become, because of this uh, potential, it's also become rife for a lot of illicit trades, such as um, drugs and Prostitution is quite prevalent, and uh, smuggling, obviously, human smuggling to Europe. You know, it's, it's one of the key points. If you're looking for a smuggler, you go to Kumkapa. There's even a corner where they stand. So, you know, it's kind of become this area and where it's known that authorities, uh, well, authorities know about it, uh, but there's this feeling that, you know, Kumkapa is this place where you can get away with this. And I think one of the most important markers of this is that the very boundary where Kumkapa finishes and kind of Sultan Ahmed begins Kumkap is only, or sorry, Istanbul's only uh, detention and removal center for foreigners is located in Kumkapa, right next to this historic and highly touristy uh, restaurant district. So this is the building here, and you can see it there as well. And initially, I thought a lot of residents of Kumkapa would be kind of fearful about going to the vicinity of the center, but actually many informants asked us to meet uh, in front of this building. So, you know, there's just this sense that, you know, as long as you don't get into trouble... Uh, you know, as long as you're not caught with drugs or, uh, you know, that they're not interested. You know, being undocumented uh, is not of concern to the authorities. And Kumkap is a space where you can kind of be allowed to exist. There is that perception. But another aspect is that um, Kumkap is kind of treated as a space where also moral and cultural norms can be, can be stretched. And um, I'll try to point to this through some of the ethnographic cases, but, you know, I can't generalize Turkish culture in general, but, you know, there's there's more clear boundaries between public and private spaces. And, you know, in Turkey, you have this whole notion of family apartments. There's there's a great uh, reluctance to, for instance, rent uh, proper, uh, apartments to singles. Bekar is a notion that I'll be coming to. And there's this kind of feeling that Kumkapa is a space where you can be single, where you can be a single woman renting property, you can be black, you know. A lot of these othernesses that might not be permitted into residential spaces in other parts of the city are actually kind of allowed access. And uh, the moral dimension is something I will come back to. Um, and in terms of that conflicted sense I was referring to earlier, 
that this openness is seen as an opportunity. So it's it's uh, it's allowed small micro ethnic communities to thrive here. So you know it offers a, a lot of familiarity uh, for a lot of the incoming migrant po populations. It's offering jobs and it's offering access to housing. I mean it's a space where they feel they can be and that they can access. Uh, yet they also feel highly anonymous because foreignness is so prevalent here. Um, that you know they don't bother about sticking out. They they use this word a lot. So. Um, so, you know, this is kind of an openness that feels comforting, but there's also the, the, this, the blurriness of this openness that is quite discomforting for people. And, and uh, I've often heard the expression where they say, you know, this is a space where anything goes. Or some Turkish-speaking uh, informants have said, this is a free trade zone. So referring both to kind of the informal economy, but also in the sense that, you know, you can do anything you want here and you can get away with it. And this kind of often translates into a lot of highly exploitative practices. So, you know, you might be able to access housing, but whether or not you're going to be kicked out the next day, you don't know. Or, or similarly, I mean, um, I would say uh, sexual harassment is very intense in this area. And just uh, this morning I received an email where one woman walking in the streets uh, was just pulled into a car by people who were pretending they were police and, you know, driven out to some outskirts of Istanbul and... Anyways, the rest of it you don't need to know, but you know, so there's this perception that that lawlessness is, you know, both to your benefit but also to your disadvantage in the sense that you have no protection. And uh, there's a lot of narratives where authority, about authorities actually acting as culprits uh, in, in this exploitation. So, you know, these, this case I told you were people pretending to be police, but there are cases where actually police, let's say, work with landlords in creating this whole scenario where, you know, the police is supposed, you know, coming to the house and say, oh, I know you're undocumented, and then, you know, pay me a bribe, and then the bribe is shared between the police and the landlord. And, you know, you hear a lot of stories like that. So the, the fourth point I wanted to make is that... So, what I to told you in the previous uh, third point was that, you know, despite this diversity, there are actually kind of certain prevailing patterns in the way that people perceive this space and respond to the diversity of the space. But um, when you move into the more micro scale of, of individual homes, and uh, what I try to sh show is that actually kind of the, the variable differences play out in more intricate ways in terms of how these home spaces and, uh, are perceived. And, you know, one of the points I, I, I look at is, is that actually difference matters in terms of how you get access to housing in Kumkapa. And these are these rental signs that you'll see kind of dispersed across all, all water's walls. And um, what I notice is that there's usually four key terms that are highlighted in these advertisements. And this is uh, what the term I mentioned earlier about bekyash, so, you know, room for single, room for family, room for foreigner, yabanje, and room for bayan, bayan, female. I mean, bekar is not a gendered term. Uh, it's, it could be f female or male. But because of, uh, so the earlier historic migration patterns I was telling you, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I told you how there was like male single labor migrants who were seeking housing. So there is this kind of understanding in Turkey that, you know, bekar, housing for bekar usually refers to male single migrants. And then you kind of, you know, have the various derivatives of, you know, like foreign family or you never have female. I've never come across female foreigner. So room for female foreigner, because I think it's always assumed that if you're female, you're foreigner. And I don't know. So, you know, you could do kind of an interesting analysis of this, but just to kind of point out how, how difference matters in terms of, of um, access to housing in the area. One thing I've done is try to kind of look at the ways uh, people make sense of their dwelling spaces, or I use the term home spaces, 
And the reason I added space was because, you know, in home and migration literature, it's kind of very loaded term about belonging, also at the national scale, but I'm really talking about the physical dwelling spaces that people are inhabiting, but I didn't want to call it a house because I wanted to look at how it's made meaningful, so I used the term home space. Just to point out like a, th a few cases, so this is, uh, this is actually the flat where I had my room as well. It was like six individual flats. I don't have pictures of the, of the rooms, but uh, one of my neighbors was this uh, Uzbek couple uh, who'd come to Turkey as labor migrants. Um, she came first uh, because, you know, uh, opportunities for in the domestic uh, work sector in Turkey are, are, are quite good uh, in terms of pay and just finding job. For him, there were less opportunities. Actually, Russia was a, a, was a more viable alternative for, for him, but he was very fearful about, you know, stories of women uh, Russian. As I said, when they speak Russian, they're referring to kind of the former Soviet, so like w Russian women falling into bad ways after coming to Turkey. So he came with her, and they have quite a very, very small room, I'd say about like four square meters. But they managed because actually she spends uh, six nights uh, staying at her employer's house. And um, they could actually, uh, they pay about, what was it then? I think it was $150 for the room. And they could actually afford to move elsewhere. You know, they, they, for them, it's a very undesirable living situation. And, you know, interestingly, they talked about, for instance, how in Uzbekistan, like, renting is a taboo thing. You know, they, they, they don't tell their relatives that they're renting property. You know, you should be homeowners or you should live with your family. And also kind of this idea of having neighbors uh, at such close quarters was shameful, particularly... Uh, having strangers or a black person as a neighbor or, you know, uh, even their co-nationals who they thought were kind of morally suspect because you do have a lot of these single uh, Uzbek Turkmen women coming uh, for labor purposes but gradually kind of moving into legalizing their strategy, uh, legalizing their status through uh, kind of romantic uh, engagement. So, you know, they were kind of, they didn't enjoy being in such quarters but for them, you know, this was a, a functional choice in the sense that it's affordable. It allowed them to save a lot of money. And um, they basically invested all their savings in uh, buying items that were transported back to Uzbekistan to the new house they were building there. So, you know, I had this very interesting dialogue with them about the use of secondhand furniture and where they, uh, I'm sorry, I won't go into the case, but, you know, just every, because I did look at to kind of the different, uh, materialities of the spaces they inhabited and for them it was like everything had to be invested for that new house that they were building back in, in Uzbekistan and just to show you kind of the variations in quality this is just actually three floors below in the basement and um, this is a, a Senegalese couple again there were like six rooms here whereas for the Uzbek couple they kind of emphasized the functionality of the living spaces in Kumkapu for them it was very much a necessity well A, they, they didn't have access to housing uh, or they felt it would be very difficult for them to have access to housing in any other district apart from Kumkapu or that you know it'd be, it would be much more expensive because as soon as they see they're a foreigner you know they, they increase uh, the, the amount of rent that's asked for and you know you have a similar case of you know in this case it was actually the him who came first and she who followed this time in the due to kind of fear of these narratives of hearing about you know the Senegalese men who get you know remarry go into second marriages so for her it was like you know she she felt the need to follow him but really struggles in terms of finding employment compared to the Uzbek woman so she's uh, selling trying to sell watches on the street at some point she was uh, cooking for uh, like all the the housemates and then 
started um, kind of using the space as an informal restaurant, and just actually three weeks ago, they were kicked out for this precise reason, because there's a lot of um, conflict over smell of African food in uh, many apartment buildings. There's just created this discourse that that, that food smells, and it's, it's leading uh, to a lot of problems. What, on the other hand, you know, this is, for them, it's really a necessary space, but you also hear them speak a lot about um, how Kumkapu in general offers them a sense of community and solidarity in a space that is otherwise very hostile to them. And very, a very similar narrative is, appears with this other house just up the street, which is inhabited by uh, five um, unaccompanied minor refugees from Guinea who uh, all met in an institutional uh, setting, actually, because they came as unaccompanied minors, they stayed in this Turkish, yeah, okay, you can call it an orphanage, yeah, for yeah, a state shelter, a state shelter for, for, for minors, and that's where they had all met. In their, in their narratives, because, you know, they, they, they always compare their current experience of living in Kumkapu to that of the experience of living in this institutional setting, where, you know, they wanted to live together with people who spoke a familiar language, you know, who, again, cooking appears very prevalent, you know, where they could eat the same food and they could talk as loud as they want. That was another thing. And um, well, I'm going to skip. So, but I mean, what, I, what I'll just, this is just to kind of give you a taste of the type of stories that I'm looking at and, you know, how I'm trying to relate it to the materiality of the space, the senses attributed to the space. And, you know, I, I also look not just at international migrants, but, you know, all, all the populations that are living in this space. This is a 90-year-old Armenian woman who's lived on this exact same street for 60 years and you know in her narrative a lot of issues about age and class so like she's a she's Armenian Turkish Armenian but of a lower class a, a lot of insecurity uh, to do with age but also just generally that particular street that she's living in is is quite hostile that's you, you'll recognize this is the Somali stand-up street and just kind of over here is where a lot of the smugglers stand so you know she's had a lot of people trying to break into her house and things like that uh, yet on the other hand, you know, she spent six, her husband died 20 years ago, she's a widower, she never had children, so she's very used to living on her own and being independent and kind of fearful about being moved into an uh, older person's home and having to live in a dormitory setting with 30 other dying people. So, you know, it's very interesting that this is how, you know, she has, again, this very conflicted relationship with the space she lives in. Uh, this is just a Turkish family here. Again, I won't go into this, but I mentioned to you how Yenikapa, this uh, parallel district, is now being rapidly transformed through uh, renewal projects. And this, these are these historic houses which are potentially very profitable. And there's also uh, but the seven uh, siblings own this property. So, so, you know, there's a lot of conflict about what to do with this house. They're still renting uh, the rooms to uh, different migrant populations. You know, they're not very happy about this, but they're waiting for the opportune moment. This is just a complete contrast. This is a, a, a Kurdish family. Um, okay, I don't want time to that. Okay. So, on the final point about how to conceive urban spaces of migrant arrival in the contemporary era. So, I mean, many of you are familiar. Well, Okay, so the theme of the seminar is about the arrival city, and I've been using the notion of uh, arrival neighborhood, but I'm not actually sure whether this uh, justifies uh, the description of, of Kumkapa. So, I mean, this is uh, an arrival. You could, you could argue that Kumkapa is an arrival space and kind of even this very classical Chicago school understanding where, you know, a lot of, you, you see when you look at the 60-year history, like a new migrant population comes in, gradually they move out. And interestingly, like the property ownership is kind of the last marker. So as I mentioned, 
uh, for instance, there's still quite a few Armenian and Anatolian uh, migrants who own property there, and then gradually the newcomers take over the ownership. So, that, so there is this gradual transition of, of kind of moving in and moving out. But to say, I mean, there's a lot of who also choose to settle here, and I think to even if they move out residentially, what I found very interesting is that people uh, still keep the businesses there. And, uh, I mean, if they're spending uh, six days, uh, 10, 12 hours a day in this locality, you know, most of their life is actually spent there. So, you know, they don't even relate to the neighborhoods they've moved to at the same level they do. So, you know, can you say that they've moved on from here? I mean, this is one of the questions to have. Uh, and then... You know, obviously, to, to call this an ethnic enclave is you could. There's multiple ethnicities, and they have their own little uh, micro economies being formed. But on the other hand, it, it's more of a foreigner enclave in a sense. Um, and you know, could you call this kind of like an urban village? You know, there's not. It's already being refuted that kind of in the age of globalization, you know, those borders are becoming more translucent. So. You know, is there a unified community amidst this diversity? I mean, I think, uh, as I tried to portray in this kind of the senses of place created, there is kind of uh, an overarching culture or understanding of what uh, inhabiting Punkapa as a space implies and kind of the types of mannerisms that should uh, be practiced here. You know, there is this kind of overarching uh, understanding. Or, um, you know, there's this discourse around these kind of like, yeah, super diverse spaces, global spaces, kind of multi-everything, multi-ethnic, multi-racial neighborhood. You know, it could, it does um, stand as such a place as well. You know, it's mixed with, sorry, I'm actually thinking of one particular piece, you know, where they're talking about these uh, borderlands and global spaces, but it, it still is a very... You do, it's, it's not all of Turkish society that is mixed. It is the most marginal components of Turkish society that are mixed in this neighborhood. So to call it like a multi, celebrated as a multicultural, multi-ethnic neighborhood, I think would also be, be deceiving. And the problem is, which I tried to get with my for, fourth point, is that, you know, you have very different spatialities, temporalities, uh, operating in this area at the exact same time. So, you know, it, for some people, it's a highly transnational space. They're virtually connected and geographically connected to a lot of different spaces, whereas for, and also in terms of their mobility in the city, there's great variations. Whereas for others, you know, they live, uh, that 90-year-old woman, I said, actually lives in that house and doesn't even go on the street, doesn't even explore other parts of the city, and you have many such cases. So, you know, how to kind of... So, I, this is more, I'm not bringing this as a conclusion, but kind of I am trying to understand how can I conceive uh, such a space. And um, I'll perhaps, maybe that's not a wise decision, but it, this is just a recent uh, article uh, I came by, uh, by Lauren Landau, who talks about you know, how to, to conceive a space that's both extremely accommodating, but also radically exclusive, where you see you know, forms of, of fragmentation and fluidity alongside you know, solidarity and community. And these are the conflicts that I was trying to to point out, and they do produce very distinct uh, socio-political formations, uh, spatial relations. So, yes, I think I'm going to end with that and just say that uh, you know it does raise questions. I, I don't think that the, our current understanding of, of conceiving such spaces, whether as a rival, as a gateway, as a global space, is kind of sufficient, at least for me, in, in understanding uh, or how to make sense of the place.